37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Welcome back, everybody, to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 225. Now, before we kick things off, first of all, like he's always been, Preston is here with me. Preston, how are you? Oh, uh, yeah, you know, pretty good. I can't complain. Good, because no one would listen. Yeah, no one, no one gives a shit. And also, after a long over, <laughs> after a long overdue hiatus, we are finally welcoming back big, dare I say, medium Stephen to the show. Welcome home, buddy. Truth. What's up? It's been a long time. Think since episode two hundred, <laughs> it's it's been a minute. <laughs> it's been a minute indeed. Uh, life's crazy. Work is extremely crazy. Dealing with death in the middle of a pandemic, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. But um, yeah, excited to come on this this show. You guys told me the idea of it, and I wanted to come on to honor Big John Wiener and. Honor Preston and his family. You've probably got a, a unique perspective on the uh, the series of shows we're about to start getting into here, anyway. So, could be hanging with the and stiffs I mean, to the break of dawn. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, man. <laughs> now, before we get started, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, off and on, perhaps the last handful of episodes, we may have been lacking a little bit, and that's probably true. Because it's been extremely busy and lots and lots of stuff keeps piling up for everybody. Like, Steve, your work schedule has been crazy. Um, you've moved twice personally in the last, you know, I mean, shoot, since Halloween practically. Mm -hmm. You yourself have been probably busier than both Preston and I put together. But we've both been crazy busy with work. And we just haven't had time to really deep dive into any kind of research. Because as life does, uh, it just got super busy. But now that the new year has finally kicked off, hopefully things are going to slow back down as they appear to be doing. And we're finally going to get back to the old pixelated paranormal that we all know and love so much. And I think that uh, it's worth mentioning here, as we kind of alluded to the general topic we're going to be jumping into. Cave monsters are fun. We're not giving that up. But I think it's time to move on as we finally get started on a series we've been wanting to delve into for a long time. And that would go without saying that the next several episodes are going to deal with a topic that is indeed strange, but also potentially upsetting, and that is going to be the overall topic of death. And with death comes some mentions about religion and other spiritual beliefs, and so as always, we'll do our best to remain respectful here and to remind y'all that we are not really trying to sway or purposefully alter anyone's personal views or beliefs. We're just here to have a fun chat about weird shit. What is dying? No one who has done it can tell us what it is like. Are we mere sparks of a sentence that death extinguishes, or fledging immortals who fear to leave the nest, or both, or neither? We are conceived in mystery, and into mystery we die. Olaf Stapleton. Oh, that's the snowman guy, right? Yeah. I think so. He deals with death on a daily basis. The fucking sun comes out, and he's like, No! <laughs> Anyways, how special an event it is. Only an elite club of some 100 billion humans have experienced it thus far. This year, 
just 58 million more people will be permitted to join those shades of the departed. That's around 160,000 people each day. Or to put it another way, since your last breath, five people have slipped this mortal coil, their existence upon the earth, with all the attendance of hopes, dreams, joys, and loves, apparently extinguished forever. And fuck me, that was dark. <laughs> there was one time in kindergarten when I don't know what prompted me to say this, but someone had lost uh, a loved one or something, and our teacher was trying to talk about death and just the overall population. And I remember having the weirdest epiphany where I stood up and I was just like, Mrs. Hinderleiter, just so everybody knows, like every second of the day, someone dies and someone's born. <laughs> I just remember her looking at me very profoundly and also kind of a little creeped out. Yeah. <laughs> her son's, her, my girlfriend's son's. Uh, talks about that all quite often. Oh, really? Yeah, about one di- somebody dies and was born every minute. And, like, he says all these stats, and I'm like, "Where you? Where do you get all this shit?" <laughs> YouTube, all those fucking Mario Legos, bro. Yeah, yeah, right. Some of those people will welcome the approach of the Grim Reaper, expecting unions with their God or Savior of choice. Others will hand themselves over to death, confident in their belief that this is the utter end of them in every sense. Over the past 150 years, a small percentage of scientists have taken it upon themselves to investigate testimony given by the dying from their deathbeds, by patients who went as close to death as possible before returning to life, and from others who claim to be able to speak with the dead. At risk of ridicule and damage from the reputations within the academic community, these scientists have nevertheless reported on what they have found. And as we dive deeper into these topics with these series of shows, you will find there's no shortage of hints and suggestions that some part of us does continue on after the physical death of our body. And we promise this won't be like thieves in the night. So Isaac, buddy, you won't be waiting uh, five months for part two or three. So no fucking song to coax us in to deliver the promise episode, buddy. We're going (laughs) to hit it hard and deliver it as promised. And... When it comes to stop worrying, there probably is an afterlife. Uh, The author, Greg Taylor, wanted to make clear that from the beginning, this book is not about convincing or converting any reader to a belief in the afterlife. Now, should we allude to the fact that what you just referenced is a book that most of this episode is based off of then? Yes, this is all coming from uh, these stories are coming from the book. (laughs) Stop worrying. There probably is an afterlife. I was reading the doc when you sent it to me, and I'm like, this motherfucker hasn't even said, by the way, guys, uh, a book. I read a book. Yeah, you read a book. Like, Man, Preston is so profound. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just amazing. He's the philosopher. It's it's the Tony Stark oh, glasses. Awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? Hey, that's funny. We've all got new glasses. Yeah. We did. Man, Steve and I both have Sean Johns. What the fuck are you wearing, Ray Bans? Get the fuck out of here! Got that Puff Daddy shit, man. One that Sean John Puff Daddy (laughs) click. That's true. You both are. No, I'm wearing uh, my new frames are from Hurley because I am still a wannabe skateboarder. Damn, you're busting out them fucking DC globes. Well, just like author Greg Taylor had just said, we too, frankly, are not trying to change anybody's belief in the afterlife. And because just about everything else we 
just like everything else we bullshit about around here, this is a strange topic that we're really just wanting to get the conversation started on and to get your old thinkers a-thinking. Once we believe in something, we stop questioning the model of reality, and we thus fail to update and modify our worldview and move forward through continued learning. We are also destined to become virtually deaf, dumb, and blind to the beliefs and opinions of others, which is a surefire recipe for inhumanity. Now let's take a quick sidestep. This show has been in the works for a year. Actually, this time last year, Sean and I discussed doing a surviving death series. So I picked up this book and started while I was at the hospital with the old man. And I haven't found a good time to interject it in. You can't go from cave monsters to icy dead people. But uh, it's been a year since I lost Dad, so I thought, fuck it. This show is for you, Big John Wiener. And, hell, Pops and I had a moment that could have been in this book. So with further ado, let's get back to it. And now, President, you've written this kind of in a first person. So I'm going to try to read this as a third person. Uh, if I can, because yeah, this you, is all um, based off of several excerpts from the book, right? Yeah. So this is uh, the author explaining how he came up with the title um, because he dealt with his dad dying in a hospital and spending, you know, time around somebody who was dying. And so he basically mm-hmm. is like, let me explain this, you know, the title of this book. And so that's cool. you. Cool, cool, cool. Tight, tight, tight. So the title of the book has its origins in a talk that Greg Taylor had with his father a few years ago when he was in the late stages of early onset Alzheimer's disease, which in itself is just truly gut-wrenching. Yeah. Some 12 years or so on from his diagnosis at the age of 54, his dad could no longer talk and to most appearances seemed to have only the barest understanding of the world going on around him. His brain continued to lose control of his body, muscle spasms and seizures became constants throughout his day, and the most basic movements now had seemed Herculean in nature for him. Herculean. Concerning that, <laughs> concerning that he may have only grimly been holding on for, quote-unquote, us, his family, at a great personal expense, Taylor told his father that while he fought on, he had their total support and then if he wanted to let go, then they would totally understand and respect his decision. And as someone who's been interested in the scientific investigation of the possibility of an afterlife or a life beyond death for many years, Taylor also let him know his own thoughts on what he thought he might experience if he desired to truly let go. Now, drawing on everything he had read in the past, from scientific studies through skeptical investigations, he told his father his opinions at that point in time. That there's probably some sort of afterlife, and so he emphasized the probably, for the reason outlined above, he retains doubt and the right to revise that opinion as more evidence on the topics are collected, which I think personally is pretty respectful. You know yeah. what? You want to make sure all this stuff is is tip-top shape, but again, mm-hmm. you're not totally against just admitting everything was bullshit if someone came out and said, nah, sorry, Greg. Right. But given the facts that he's come across on his own from his own research, in which he believes he's been as honest as possible as he can, This is the model of reality that seems to be most likely to him to be true at that point. 
He says he's not sure if his dad had the ability to comprehend everything he had said in his conversation with him, but he does know that when he finished talking, one single tear ran down his father's cheek, but whether or not that was a result of their discussion or just the breeze from a ceiling fan aggravating his eye, Taylor cannot say for sure. He prefers to thank the former, and that somewhere deep within the besieged fortress of his father's mind, he understood everything that he had said. His dad died the following year, and in the pages of the book that Preston has read, he's done his very best to share with the perspectives that informed his discussion with his father, and he thinks it's worthwhile information to have when contemplating the fact of whether you too will one day die. So our first story takes place in December 1943 as World War II rages across the European continent. Private George Ritchie lay perilously close to death in a Texas military hospital as he suffered from a severe case of pneumonia. The 20-year-old had recently completed his basic training and was booked on the next day's train to Richmond to study as a doctor at the Medical College of Virginia. However, as the fever took hold, the young soldier's body's temperature soared above 106. Oh, that's hot. That's like devil hot. Dude, I hit 104.8. My old thinker was fucking boiling. On the cold winter's night of December 20th, 1943, Private Ritchie left on another far stranger journey. I heard a click and a whir. The whir went on and on. It was getting louder. The whir was inside my head and my knees were made of rubber. They were bending and I was falling and all the time the whir grew louder. I sat up with a start. What time is it? I looked at the bedside table, but they'd taken the clock away. In fact, where was any of my shit? I jumped out of the bed in alarm, looking for my clothes. My uniform wasn't on the chair. I turned around, then froze. Someone was lying in that bed. Hello, Richie. I'm the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Beep, beep, Richie. Private Richie didn't stop to think any further, assuming that he had slept through the night and was now late for his Virginia-bound train. He rushed out into the corridor and attempted to gain the attention of an approaching sergeant. However, the sergeant appeared not to see him and brushed past without the slightest acknowledgement. The young private decided to take matters into his own hands and dashed down the corridor toward the exit. A pair of swinging metal doors. And then suddenly, he found himself flying through the air faster than he had ever traveled before, as if it suddenly... Uh, taken on the powers of the recently created comic book character Superman. And when he finally came to a... Yeah. When he finally (laughs) came to a halt, Private Ritchie realized with amazement that he had traveled to his desired destination of Richmond, Virginia. 100 times faster than any train could. All right, calm down, Superman. (laughs) Despite still wearing his army-issued hospital pajamas, he approached a civilian stranger to ask for some bearings. But to his distress, the man didn't appear to see him either. While the fact disturbed Private Ritchie, what followed left him gaping. Reaching out with his left hand to tap the man on the shoulder, he found to his astonishment that his hand passed straight through the stranger's body. And at this point, Private George Ritchie realized that he was, in fact, dead. And suddenly, I remember the young man I'd seen in the bed in that hospital room. What if that had been me, or anyhow, the material, concrete part of myself 
that in some unexplainable way I'd gotten separated from. What if the form which I had left lying in the hospital room in Texas was my own? And if it were, how could I get back to it again? Well, within an instant of this stunt, he found himself rushing back to the Army hospital, where he desperately searched ward after ward after ward for his physical body. Scanning the faces of the sleeping soldiers, Private Ritchie was at wit's end when he finally came across a body covered with a sheet. Noticing the onyx and gold fraternity ring on the middle finger of the cadaver's hand, he was not surprisingly but only slightly relieved to realize that this was his corpse. Suddenly, the room became much brighter and a being of light appeared to Private Ritchie. Episodes of his life began to play out before him. Everything that had ever happened to me was simply there, in full view, contemporary and current, all seemingly taking place at the same time, while the light asked one simple question, what did you do with your life? But despite the magnitude and the interrogatory phasing of this question, at no time did Richie feel that he was being judged by the being. After this review of his life, the being whom the newly dead man guessed was Jesus— I mean, I guess I probably would have guessed it was Jesus, too. Maybe. Yeah, you know, if, unless he didn't have a beard, then I've been like, who the fuck are you, Dollar Store Jesus? Get out of here. <laughs> Anyways, Dollar Store Jesus took him on a tour of both <laughs> earthly and heavenly realms. And to Private Richie's surprise, the being then gave him orders to return to the land of the living. If anybody was more surprised at his return to life than George Richie, it was probably the army physician who had just signed the young soldier's death certificate. An orderly had noticed some movement as he prepared the corpse for the morgue and summoned the doctor who quickly administered a shot of adrenaline straight into the dead man's heart. So remember that scene in fucking Pulp Fiction? Like, that's what happened to Private Ritchie. And nice. <laughs> he returned to, turned to life with a burning throat and a crushing weight on his chest a full nine minutes after he appeared to have taken his last breath. Damn. Yeah. What do you Isn't guys think? Isn't that a similar premise of the Michael J. Fox movie, The Frighteners? Um, I mean, maybe. It's been a while since I've seen that. Sounds about like it. Yeah. I just remember Crazy Gary or Gary Busey's son in it. So our next story is entitled, Oh, Wow. In October 2011, the death of Apple founder Steve Jobs made news across the world. His premature passing at age 56 was yet another reminder to us that no matter what your age or your position you hold in life, death or is how many jet skis you have. That's right. Death is a great leveler. It'll knock you on your ass. <laughs> but his death might also offer clues to something more. In her eulogy, Steve Jobs' sister, Mona Simpson, closed by sharing the technology guru's last spoken communication before his passing. According to Simpson, Steve's final words hours earlier were monosyllables repeated three times. Before embarking, he looked up at his sister Patty, then for a long time at his children, then at his life partner Lorraine, and then over their shoulders past them, Steve's final words were, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I wish we could interject the apple. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> oh, interject the Oh Wilson. Wow. 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 <laughs> That'd be great. 
Perhaps the Steve's exclamations were referring to his family in an attempt to transmit his deep feelings of affection and awe for each of them. Or maybe he was simply summing up his own amazing life in the final moments of reflection. But Mona Simpson's description of the scene could also be read another way. And it's perhaps meant to be uh, given that just a few sentences earlier, she mentioned how her brother had told her, I'm going to a better place. She relates that when exclaiming, oh, wow, three times, he was not looking at his uh, family anymore, but over their shoulders past them. This scenario is strongly suggestive of a strange experience that sometimes occurs shortly before the time of passing, the so-called deathbed visions or takeaway visions, in which the dying person sees apparitions of the already dearly departed or loved ones, and also sometimes what appear to be heavenly creatures such as angels who have apparently come with the express purpose of collecting the individual and guiding them into the afterlife. So I can relate to this because the day before Dad passed, um, he had gotten way worse, and the docs wanted to talk to me. And, you know, Dad was in and out of it for most of the day. And when I got to the hospital, you know, he was really incoherent and all over the place. And they just removed the breathing tube for what seemed like, you know, the 10th time. Because every time I would go in, we'd put a breathing tube in, we'd take a breathing tube out. And Uh. when I walked into the room, he had looked directly past me, like over my shoulder. And he reached his arms out and, you know, to whoever, he said, take me, take me. And then he closed his eyes. And that was the last time Dad ever said anything. Jeez, man. Yeah. So another deathbed account from a palliative carer tells how a lady an hour before she died said, They're all in the room. They're all in the room. The room was full of people she knew, and I can remember feeling quite spooked, really, and looking over my shoulder, not seeing a thing, but she could definitely see the room was full of people that she had knew. So how often do these experiences occur? Well, a lot more commonly than you might think. In a recent British study, researchers found that almost two-thirds of doctors, nurses, and hospice carers reported witnessing end-of-life experiences, or ELEs, such as deathbed visions, or DBVs, in their patients. God, I fucking fucking hate those acronyms. (laughs) So, I think that it goes without saying... That, like, I'm not here to say whether this is real or not, whether it happens or not. But, like, when I go for my job, I pick them up after they've already passed away. During that time, I see a lot of the nurses, hospice nurses, and sometimes family. um, They have to document what medicine they discard. Um, And a lot of this medicine, the morphine, the codeine promethazine, like all these like hardcore painkillers. When you are going through the stages of death and you are dying, it is extremely painful to a person. So they dope them up with a lot of them pain medicines like that. And that can cause severe hallucinating. You know what, Steve? I'm really really glad that you brought this up because I'm going to fucking get into that. So (laughs) thank you. Uh, Okay, cool. Because, like, cause like I, I mean, that's not saying that this stuff doesn't happen, right. but it's, like, because, like, for instance, my my um, experience with when somebody's actively dying, I uh, was with uh, an ex-girlfriend, and her father was passing away, and 
it was a mixture of his brain telling him because mm-hmm. he's like an everyday smoker. So he'd be like sit up in the bed and he would like mimic him smoking a cigarette. And we thought it was hilarious because we were like, look at this fiend, man. <laughs> he just wants to smoke so bad. But it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was like his brain telling him to do it. And he was just like he'd like be sitting there like talking to himself and like talking to somebody that's not there and stuff. And, you know, the hospital nurse is like, yeah, he's just, he's extremely doped up because it's to help with the pain from the cancer. So, I mean, I don't know. All right. Hold on. I, think, I might sway you. OK. Yeah. Something, something to think about. Yeah. So, but anyway, so I just wanted to bring that up. So the uh, survey headed by neuropsychiatrist uh, Dr. Peter Fenwick concluded that such experiences were common elements of, of the dying process, and additionally that they were often healing experiences for both the dying and the families. An Irish study in 2009 of 40 carers revealed very similar numbers. So we're going back to this whole two-thirds of so 75%. Um, and around the, that two-thirds responded about having witnessed end-of-life experiences in their patient. A larger-scale study of the U.S. within 525 respondents found that more than half of them reported instances of a dying person seeing or hearing deceased loved ones. And a small study in Australia uh, that surveyed just five palliative care nurses found that all five reported witnessing at least four paranormal experiences while attending dying patients, most common of which was deathbed visions. But to be clear on a a point about deathbed visions— uh, Peter Fenwick's study explicitly noted carers aren't referring to feverish visions under the influence of drugs or dementia-induced hallucinations. In fact, research has found that patients were less likely to have a deathbed vision if they were medicated with drugs or suffering from an illness which affected their normal state of consciousness. In their own survey, researcher Carlos Osis and Erlander Haldison I fucking butchered that, but, you know, that's what I do. I think you nailed it, actually. That was one of the best pronunciations you've done on the fly. Fuck yeah. So (laughs) those two peeps found that 80% of those who had experienced a deathbed vision were not under the influence of drugs when it occurred. And one doctor, at least, uh, the issue was resolved with a patient who was reporting frequent visions of giant spiders, along with the occasional report that his already dead brother was visiting him. The physician substituted another pain relief for the morphine that the patient was on. The giant spider hallucinations immediately stopped, but the visions of his brother continued up until his passing, leading the doctor to state that, It appears reasonably certain that deathbed visions are not part of a delirium caused by medical illness or drug toxicity. Maybe I swayed you, Steve. Maybe I didn't. (laughs) That's your argument. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> God, Preston with the, the hard-hitting arguments. <laughs> yeah. Um, Shayla. I mean, come on, dude. The guy was high off morphine <laughs> so and saw giant fucking spiders and his fucking Obi-Wan Kenobi brother next to him. The, they get rid of the morphine and the dead spiders go away, but Obi-Wan Kenobi's still hanging out. So, I mean, maybe it's not the drugs. That's it, all It just I'm seems like a movie moment when, like, his brother shows up, like, angelically. And then he just says... That's a big fucking spider, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. I remember, um, gosh, we were in college, man. This was back in like maybe 2004, 2005. Shayla had gotten a really nasty E. coli infection and also a kidney infection at the same time or bladder infection or something. Yeah, I think it was kidney Double and E. Coli. Whammy. And when she was hospitalized for it, 
the girl sharing a room with her on the other side of a curtain kept waking up screaming about seeing spiders in her room crawling up the walls and stuff like that. Goddamn morphine, man. Yeah. All right. Mother-in-law to the rescue. In fact, rather than being a feverish hallucination, patients recount deathbed visions calmly and rationally to family or carers, usually exhibiting no fear or confusion about what they have seen. Okay. So, listeners, Preston wrote this up, and he wrote my line to say, Indeed. Because that's what you... Why the fuck do I need to read? Because, <laughs> what? because uh, <laughs> the one of the lines in the book was, Indeed, during their final days. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't like the way that sounds. But I'm like, Steve always says indeed anyways. Yeah. So I'm just... Because I wanted oh you back. God. I threw that in there for you, buddy. I was like, okay. But, I was like, why yeah. would you just write indeed? Like, who says that in the book? <laughs> indeed. But, but Preston, really, like, what's, what's his motivation in this scene? Uh, he's just in, agreeing with everything mm-hmm. that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay, I get it now. During their final days, the terminally ill are often said to be almost living in two worlds, swapping nonchalantly Indeed. between, yeah, chatting with uh, palliative carers, <laughs> family, physically in the room, and interacting with visions of previ- previously deceased individuals who appear to be in some way there to help them with the dying process. And perhaps guiding them into the afterlife. Over and over again, yeah, these, like these stories, the dominant theme is the here and now is suddenly not of any importance to the dying person. Their focus now lies with what the next world and those have, have come to take them, you know, why they're there. For instance, in Italy, a wife ran to her dying husband's side only to be told by him that her mother, who had died three years previously, said... Indeed. <laughs> How can I not make an exorcist joke right here? Your mother's in here with us. <laughs> yeah, dude, just do it. It's fine. <laughs> Your mother, she's here and helping me to break out of this disgusting body. There's so much light here. So much peace. Deathbed visions are certainly not just a recent phenomenon. They've been recognized and written about for centuries across the world, from indigenous cultures to modern Western society. For example, in 1878, we find testimony from a doctor concerning the prevalence of deathbed visions that could just as easily apply to the Jobs family in 2011. (laughs) I don't even know how this is supposed to sound. There's scarcely a family in the land of whose members have not died with a glorious expression of features or exclamation on their lips, which, to stand us by, was a token of beatic vision. Yeah. Was that Cogni? Yeah, you nailed it, dude. Or just you, offensive. You, you got it. No. I don't know. I like it. It was cool, man. Yeah. Good job. I felt like you're <laughs> I felt like you're wearing a tweed jacket. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll give you a C for cognitive. Did you have a tweed jacket on when you read that? <laughs> I put on a corduroy jacket, you prick. In the same era, the author Francis Cabe similarly wrote that In almost every family or circle a question will elicit recollections of deathbed scenes, wherein with singular reoccurrence appears one very significant incident, namely that the dying person precisely at the moment of death and when the power of speech was lost or nearly lost, seems something. And what do they see? Cobb noted that over and over again, the experiences described almost in the same words by persons who have never heard of similar occurrences and who 
suppose their own experience to be unique. It is this commonality between experiences that is suggestive that we are viewing an important phenomenon. An example from Cobb's book should turn you from a scully to a molder and show that very little has changed in the experience over this substantial amount of time. I was watching one night beside a poor man dying of consumption. His case was hopeless, but there was no appearance of the end being very near. He was in full possession of his senses, able to talk with a strong voice, and not in the least bit drowsy. He had slept through the day and was so wakeful that I had been conversing with him on ordinary subjects to while away the long hours. Suddenly, we were thus talking quietly together. He became silent and then fixed his eyes on one particular spot in the room, which was entirely vacant, even of furniture. At the same time, a look of the greatest delight changed the whole expression of his face, and after a moment of what seemed to be intense scrutiny of some object invisible to me, he said to me in a joyous tone, There's Jim! Jim was a little son who he had lost the year before, and whom I had known well. But the dying man had a son still living named John, for whom he had seen, and I concluded that it was John he was speaking, and that he had thought he heard him arriving. So I answered, No, John has not been able to come. But the man turned to me impatiently and said, I do not mean John. I know he is not here. It is Jim, my little lame Jim. Surely you do remember him. Yes, I said, I remember dear little Jim, who died last year quite well. Don't you see him then? There he is. He was pointing to the vacant space on which his eyes were fixed, and when I did not answer, he repeated almost fretfully, Don't you see him standing there? I answered that I could not see him, though I felt perfectly convinced that something was visible to the sick man, which I could not perceive. When I gave him the answer, he seemed quite amazed and turned round to look at me with a glance almost of indignation. His eyes met mine. I saw a film that seemed to pass over them. The light of intelligence died away. He gave a gentle sigh and expired. He didn't live five minutes from the time he first said, There's Jim, although there had been no sign of approaching death previous to that moment. Another interesting facet of deathbed visions is that they seem to occur regardless of age. If they are just a trick of the brain, then we would have to consider it somehow and for some strange reason hardwired into our biological makeup. Physicist Sir William Barrett, in researching the phenomenon, was impressed by not only the commonality of the description of the experience um, in those of a younger age, but also that their dying visions did not agree with what might be expected from them from their religious upbringing. Barrett also recounted the case of a schoolgirl, Hattie Pratt, who passed away from diphtheria in the early 1900s, whose deathbed vision once again shows how the dying seemed to straddle the boundary between the living and the dead. As the family gathered around during her final hours, gazing upon her dear features, and as the light of life gradually went out and the ashy parlor of death settled over them, Another family member apparently appeared to help young Hattie on her way to the next world. Although her throat was so choked up with diphtheretic membrane that her voice was very thick and it required close attention to catch all of her words, her mind seemed unusually clear and rational. 
She knew that she was passing away and was telling our mother how to dispose of her little personal belongings among her close friends and playmates. When suddenly she raised her eyes as though gazing at the ceiling toward the farther side of the room and after looking steadily and apparently listening, she slightly bowed her head and then she said, Yes, Grandma, I am coming. Only wait just a little while, please. Our father had asked, Addie, do you see Grandma? Seemingly surprised at the question, she promptly had answered, Yes, Papa, can't you see her? She is there waiting for me. At the same time, she pointed toward the ceiling in the direction in which she had been gazing, again addressing the vision she evidently had of our grandmother. Then she scowled a little impatiently, and she said, Yes, Grandma, I'm coming, but wait a minute, please. Then she turned once more to her mother and finished telling her what of her personal treasures to give to different people and her acquaintances, at last giving her attention once more to Grandma, who was apparently urging her to come on at once. She bade each of us goodbye. Her voice was very feeble and faint, but the look in her eye as she glanced briefly from each of us one to the other was as lifelike and intelligent as it could be. She then fixed her eyes steadily on her vision, but so faintly that we could but just catch her words. Grandma, I'm coming home. <laughs> then without struggle or evidence of pain of any kind, she gazed steadily in the direction that she had pointed out, out to us where she saw Grandma until the absence of oxygen in her bloodstream. Because respiration had ceased, it left her hands and her face all covered with the pallor with the pallor of lifeless flesh. She was so clear-headed, so positive of the vision in the presence of Grandma, with whom she talked to so naturally, so surprised that the rest of us could not see Grandma, the alteration of her attention and conversation between Grandma and Father and Mother were so distinctly photographed upon the camera of my brain that I have never since been able to question the evidence of continuance of distinct, recognizable life after death. While deathbed visions are no doubt an extraordinary experience for those present at the time of a loved one's passing, they do offer do they offer any serious evidence that they are a real interaction of some sort with a post-death world, or can they be dismissed simply as an hallucination based off wishful thinking, brought on by the misfiring of brain in its death throes? Certain cases suggest quite incredibly the former. The author Francis Cobb wrote of an incident of a very striking character that occurred um, with a family with very tight bonds. A dying lady exhibited the usual telltale signs of, de of a deathbed vision by suddenly showing emotions of recognition and joy. It began telling uh, how one after another, three of her brothers who had long been dead had appeared in the room. Then strangely, a fourth brother appeared to her as dead, despite the fact that he was believed by those present to still be alive and well at his residence in India. The suggestion that he had passed away was enough to cause one person to run from the room in shock. Being the late 19th century, there was no instant way of checking on the brother's health, but sometime later, letters were received announcing his death in India at a time before his dying sister appeared to recognize a vision of him at her bedside. You know, um... Back when COVID had first hit, like, um, gosh, it, we, it had been around for exactly one year. Um, a family friend of ours who I would just pretty much just say is just family um, to all of us 
had gotten COVID while she was in a nursing home. And unfortunately, she passed away due to, you know, just health complications already to old age. And then COVID just kind of snowballed everything. Um, the nurse had told her family that, you know, she'd been pretty ill. She was slightly responsive, but mm-hmm. otherwise just really worn out and really tired. And then one evening she went to check on her, just expecting her to be laying in bed, just, you know, half asleep and relaxed. And when she opened the door, um, and I'll, I'll save her name, but um, the woman was standing there in her room packing her bag. She had a little bag and she's folding up clothes and putting them in there and, you know, unplugging her belongings that were plugged in and putting her hairbrush in the bag. And then she pulled up a suitcase and the nurse just stood there and watched the whole time. And finally, you know, the lady turned around and the nurse said, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm getting ready to go home. I feel a lot better. Thank you so much for everything you've done for me. And she was speaking just completely coherently, whereas, you know, for the last several weeks, she had just been real worn out and just tired. And she says, well, you know, were you released yet? Is someone coming to get you? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, my ride should be here pretty quick. And I'm going to go ahead and, you know, go ahead and leave. And then the next morning she passed away. So they don't know what did she just get, you know, a sudden burst of adrenaline or whatever right before death, because that seems to be pretty common where people will report feeling way, way, way better out of nowhere right before they pass away. Or, you know, possibly had she had some kind of inclination that somebody or something was coming to, you know, take her away as she was about to die. And in her brain, all she could comprehend was, oh, it's time to go. I better pack my bag. But yeah, the nurse said it was the damnedest thing. There was another book that dealt, you know, kind of like with death, deathbed visions like this one did, but it, it dealt with it from the light of what you just brought up, mm-hmm. where you have these people who are extremely sick and they're on the brink of death, but for whatever reason, they keep holding on. Like, you know, grandpa should have died like two days ago, but the doctors can't figure out, you know, they can't do anything for him. You know, there's no bringing them back, but everybody's just kind of holding on, waiting for grandpa to pass. And then, you know, the family will go in and then that individual will just be confused. Like, you know, like, oh, you know, I, I just I can't go yet. Like, I don't have my bags ready. I don't know where I'm going. Um, you know, I just uh, I'm just not ready. I just I need to get everything together. And nine times out of ten if a family member says, you know, mom, dad, it's okay. Like you'll, you'll figure it out. Like your bags are packed. We understand that's when within minutes, that's when the person uh, will, 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 you know, die. Um, so it's this idea that, um, you know, we, we are traveling to the other side that uh, something within the, the act of dying that some people hold on because they feel like their bags aren't packed or they're not ready to go. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. if somebody shows up like a deceased loved one, they're like, oh, well, you know, grandma's here. She says she's got the map. I'm ready to go. Um, <laughs> right. Then that's when they expire. Yeah. So. I can see that with what I what I experienced with uh, my ex's uh, father passing away. They, like, he kept holding on, holding on, holding on. And no one could figure out why. Everybody said everybody said their their goodbye. Uh, there was like one goodbye that hadn't happened that needed to, you know, that closure to happen. And then they thought that was going to bring it on, and then that didn't. Finally, uh, everybody was like making breakfast and taking showers, getting ready, and then all of a sudden, uh, their dog at the time like 
perks his ears up, gets up, and then just darts in the room and goes and lays underneath the bed. Oh, wow. And then that's when we go in there and there's no pulse, and so we had to call the hospice nurse. It's like, what the fuck? That was weird. So that's probably the only, like one of the only weird things in in that type of thing that I've that I've experienced yeah. like that. I mean, it it definitely if you don't believe it or you do believe it, if you lie on the side of not believing it, experiencing something like that, you know, firsthand definitely at least makes you kind of you know stroke your chin and say, huh, yeah. Especially you know when you witness it, reading and hearing the stories is one thing, but witnessing it, I think, kind of adds just a whole other level to whether or not you know it's um. A legitimate thing, you Indeed. know. Um, Psychology Today had published an article by Marilyn A. Mendoza. Um, she's a PhD, and she had mentioned that she found fifty-seven percent of the visions for um, deathbed visions were of deceased relatives in her studies. Those working with the dying report that these experiences have a calming and peaceful effect on the patient before passing, and also to those around him. Um, One report says a patient dying of cancer had been very restless through the night, and that early morning she opened her eyes and stared fixedly into the corner of the room where nobody was standing. Then she claimed, Mom, I'm so glad to see you. She smiled, and right after saying that, the tension in the room had eased, and after the comment, she literally passed away instantly. Another study was of a 52-year-old woman who was dying of a failed organ transplant, She was terrified of dying and often spoke about how she was never going to give in to death. Two days before her death, she kept looking over the um, nurse's shoulder and laughing and smiling at somebody standing behind her. And there was no one there. The nurse looked around and finally she asked the patient, who are you looking at? And the patient said, oh, it's my dead father. (laughs) And the nurse says, "Um, creep. (laughs) Yeah. And then the patient cried out or the patient calmly said, okay, all right. It's okay. Okay. Well, I'm not afraid. And then she died very peacefully smiling. And she said it was such a relief to see the poor woman finally at peace. It's it's almost like Carol Ann looking at the TV. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I remember, uh, you know, my, my story to add to all this, um, is my grandma had, she had COPD and she had emphysema. And um, to all of our knowledge, she was doing fine, you know, all things considered. And I remember one day at work, I got a phone call from my dad. I'm like, you guys, um, I don't know if Preston, I think you may have met my dad a couple of times working on the fence. Um, Steve, you met my dad. He's the most easygoing, yeah. relaxed, like mm-hmm. everything's cool. Everything's going to be fine kind of guy. And I remember he called me and I answered the phone. I said, hey, Dad, what's up? And it was just this tone that he rarely uses unless shit's super serious. And he's just like, hey, son, your grandma's in the hospital. She's up at Wesley. Get here now. And so, I, you know, I ran out of work, picked up Shayla. And it was also one of those instances where I was pretty sure she was kind of just waiting for the last of us to show up because it was all so super quick and super sudden. Um, Shayla and I were the last two to get to her hospital room where she had already been hooked up to all these, you know, machines and stuff like that. And she was already drifting kind of in and out. And I remember, you know, mom said that she was pretty quiet and then we ran in the room. And as soon as she heard our voices, she opened her eyes and kind of smiled and, you know, took each of our hands and we were talking and stuff like that. And then, um, grandma loved sunrises and sunsets. And so mom and dad had made sure that the hospital had arranged her bed to face the window so that as the sun was setting and the sun was rising, she'd be able to look out her window and see it. 
That's dope. And yeah, oh yeah, super cool. And the that night that we had got there, Shayla and I went and stayed at my brother's house. And uh, you know, mom's like, go ahead and go home, get some rest, and just come back up here first thing in the morning. You know, dad and I are gonna stay here. And we woke up that morning, unfortunately, uh, mom had called Kevin and Kevin came in the room and she said that grandma had passed away just like, I don't know, sunrise that morning. So, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning. And it, of course it sucked because, you know, my grandma was everything, but my mom told us later on that that morning, you know, the sun was coming up and things were starting to kind of lighten up and the sky was beginning to turn, you know, orange and purple and everything. And Grandma had kind of woke up and looked outside and was just slightly coherent, was just smiling and, you know, eyes wide, enjoying the sunset. And I mean, sunsets are sunrise. Sunrises are pretty and, you know, everybody loves them, I think. But my mom's like kind of out of nowhere. Um, her eyes just got real wide and she started gasping, not like for air, just like, oh, and like admiring something. And my mom is very religious and my grandma was too. And my mom just remembers saying, you know, what do you see? What do you see? What's going on? And grandma just said, it's beautiful. And like, she was just like at a loss of words, how to describe whatever it was she was seeing. And it could have easily just been the sunrise, you know, but my mom, you know, said she started crying because she knew it was, it was time. The grandma was getting ready to go. And my mom said, you know, do you see it? Do you see it? And grandma's like, yes, I see it. And it's just, it's so beautiful. And then shortly after that, she passed away. Damn. And the epilogue to that story is a year or two later, um, I had this weird dream and I don't know if I've told the dream before on the show or not, but in this dream, I'm driving in a car through El Dorado. And as you're entering El Dorado from the, uh, the West traveling East, you pretty much hit a stoplight, then you pass a Walmart and then you pass another stoplight and then you pass like the best Western. And in this dream, I'm driving down Central Street and I pass Walmart and I'm, I'm driving past <laughs> the Best Western and I go to turn into the Best Western because I had this epiphany like, oh shit, I was supposed to turn there. Well, I turned too late and I wrecked the car. And then all of a sudden, I just hear like this weird kind of like noise like, and then the dream starts over. I'm driving down Central, passing all these landmarks. I go to turn the car, I turn too late, wreck the car. And then something's like, no, that's not right. And this goes on like in a loop like three or four times. And each time I turn too late, it's like, no, that's not right. And I'm just remembering the dream thinking like, whose voice is that? And then finally I managed to make the turn like after like the fifth or sixth time of this dream resetting itself. I drive into the hotel parking lot and I drive around back and I park my car. And there's this like semi truck, kind of like Large Marge from Pee Wee Herman. And... I get out and I got this bag of trash. Hmm. I got this bag of trash over my shoulder like Santa Claus. And I kind of bebop up to this um, big trash dumpster. And there's somebody leaning over the trash dumpster rummaging through all the trash. And the coat's like this kind of like grayish purple. I'm colorblind. So this gets grayish purple, you know, thigh length coat. This I'm assuming woman is wearing leaned over. And they're like grunting with this really deep, like trucker voice, like, uh, you know, mumbling and stuff. And I remember saying like, um, you know, excuse me, I got to throw this trash in the dumpster. And then they're like, (laughs) trash in the dumpster. And I'm like, what the hell? And so finally I was like, look, I need you to move because I'm going to hit you with this bag of trash if you don't get out of the way. And I throw the bag of trash up over this person. 
and the person stands up and like in a flash, I recognize this jacket or, or coat rather they're wearing. It's my grandma's coat. My grandma always wore like this long, like embroidered light gray. My mom says it's lavender to me. It was light gray coat. And like in a way that hits me like, holy crap, that's grandma's coat. And as the person kind of sits up and they look over at me, it's not this like greasy trucker. It's my grandma wearing this old coat. And she's just like, it took you long enough. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, you kept trying to get here and you kept just messing it up. And like, it, my, she started laughing. It was my grandma's laugh. It was her face. And I was like, oh my God, grandma, grandma, grandma. Uh, what? And she's like, I'm sorry, honey. Like you just, you took too long. I only had a certain amount of time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't go, don't go. And like the sky starts like trembling and I can hear like cracking and the sound of like, you know, the earth like splitting open, fracturing and rocks breaking. And she's like, honey, I only had a certain amount of time to be here. And unfortunately, like, you know, you didn't quite figure it out and you kept wrecking that car. And, you know, that's all the time I have. But I just want to stop by and tell you that, you know, I love you and everything's fine. And where I'm at is just absolutely beautiful. You're going to love it. It's just so beautiful. And I remember like screaming, like, Grandma, don't go, don't go, don't go. And she's like, I'm sorry. Like, that's just the way the rules are. You took too long. And then we had just lost a cat, this really pretty orange tabby cat named Peach. And Peach had, uh, she's polydectal, so she had extra thumbs. She had six digits on her front feet. And I was still broken up because we lost Peach, you know, not too far uh, before that dream. And she starts walking away towards this giant big rig truck. And then all of a sudden she stops and turns around and she's like, hey, I just want to let you know that Peachy is with me and she's doing just fine. And I remember like just like crying in this dream and falling down to my knees, like begging her not to go. And then the sky rips open and like the whole dream like fractures, like someone just fucking threw a rock in a mirror. And I remember I woke up with like this really just strange sense of like serene calmness. And my pillow was just soaked. So I, was, I guess I was crying for the duration of this dream. But I always just thought that kind of correlated to, you know, what mom had said about, you know, do you see it? Do you see it? And grandma's like, it's just beautiful. And then her telling me wherever she's at is beautiful. So pretty intense. Yeah, it really was, man. It really, really was. Well, Presto, man, thanks for putting that together. Um, and That's also, cool. you know, it goes without saying, yeah. you know, RIP to Big John Wiener. Weird that it's uh, been a year. Yeah, it's so wild. That dude. was just, it seems like yesterday that motherfucker was shitting in creeks <laughs> in a cemetery. And, <laughs> oh, man. Did you, you told that story, right? Of him shitting in the creek or no? I don't know if I did, but. Um, you put you know, it on my, Facebook. You titled this document Shitting in Creeks. And you didn't actually put the story, but if you want to tell it, man, we'd, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, I, um, in my last, uh, second to last year of college, um, I, I had to take a black and white photography class. And dad was always, you know, the type of father that it, whatever it was, whether it was ceramics or wood turning or photography, like he... Even if he didn't have a lick of interest in it, he was always excited that I found a new hobby or whatever it was. And so he would always go out and, you know, go garage selling and find, like, used antique cameras and, you know, the best deal that he could get. And then he's like, all right, let's 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 go <laughs> yeah. find stuff to take pictures of. And I don't remember what the assignment was, but he thought that that 
cemetery by the university on uh, like 13th and Hillside. It's got a lot of mausoleums and stuff. He thought that that would be a great place to go and take some black and white photography for my class project. And he was on a, a, a new medication um, for like blood pressure and uh, the other slew of health problems, and it was messing with uh, with his stomach. So he was basically his tummy was rumbling. So we're out there in the <laughs> middle of the cemetery taking photos, and he's like, "Oh, uh, you think we can make it to the car real quick?" And I'm like, uh, "Dad, we're like at least a quarter of a mile away from the truck. Why?" He's like, "Oh, this medicine's really fucking up my stomach." And I'm like, well, I mean, Dad, like, I'm done. Like, it's cool. Like, we can go. Like, let's let's see how back we can hoof it to the truck. He's like, you know, grabbing his stomach. Oh, oh no, oh, hold on. And there was, like, a creak. He's like, <laughs> don't tell anybody about this. And he just drops trowel in the middle of the cemetery and just fucking squats and just shits in this creek and uh, pulls his pants back up. And he's That's like, awesome. uh, just whatever you do, don't tell your mother uh and I'm like, Dad, this is uh, this is a story that I'll take to your grave. Don't you worry, buddy. Uh, nobody will ever know. And uh, so last week or Friday, when uh, yeah. the, the anniversary of his death, you know, I'd wrote something on Facebook, and you know, I talked about how, you know, when somebody's alive and you're with them on a daily basis, uh, you know, taking care of Dad for the the last two years, um, you know, it was very humbling, and it was very, you know, it was an honor. Um, I, I know in our modern society, we, we look down on having to take care of the elderly people and sometimes it's a hassle, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I, Fuck that. uh, for me, it was quite the opposite experience. And, um, you know, I, I, I think about just, you know, what, what do you miss the most? And for me, you know, some other people might get annoyed that their parents are calling them, you know, 20 times throughout the day and. You know, at work, my phone was never on silent because dad would call so many times, like, just left and right. Like, oh, fuck, I can't. How do I get Hulu to work? I can't figure this fucking thing out. God damn it. I just want to watch this goddamn show. And I'm like, all right, dad, click here, click here. Okay, thanks. And then he called back five minutes later. I, I, I want to watch this uh, kind of uh, gold Alaska rush or something. I don't know what the fuck it's called. How do I find it? And I'm like, go here, dad. And so at least 15 times a day, like he would, he would call and just, I can't get Hulu to work or, you know, I was helping with the groceries and paying a lot of... Like, how did you survive a war, but you can't figure out how to use a remote, bro? Right. That's like, the trade-off, <laughs> like, dude. That's, that's, I know. That's, that's the trade-off. That's awesome. And uh, so I was helping with a lot of the bills and then um, helping with the groceries. And so he would call and he would have a list of, oh, I need you to bring home a case of water when you pick up the kids. Oh, are you coming over today? I need a case of water. Well, he would forget that he would have that conversation. So he would call and, hey, I don't know if I t this is your dad speaking. Uh, are you busy? No, dad. Well, I, uh, uh, you're, you're coming over today, right? Yes, dad. Oh, can you bring a case of water? Yes, dad. Okay. And then five minutes later, hey, uh, this is your father speaking. Uh, I don't, hey, did I call you earlier? Um, uh, let's not worry about that, Dad. And then, so it was like the same fucking phone conversation, like fifteen times, <laughs> and the next fifteen times. Well, I like when they in, when uh, a lot of older men do that. They're like, especially dads. Uh, this is your dad. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think I have caller ID, and also uh, yeah. 
I recognize the voice. I know like, your voice. Yeah, no shit, Dad. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. And what are you doing? So, you know, I, I miss that. I, I miss getting the phone calls. Um, I know people sometimes get annoyed with things like that, but I'm, now it's like, you know, I miss the phone calls. And it's just the fact that we used to go on adventures. And so in that post that I, I, I wrote, I said, you know, there's not enough money in the world to buy those memories, to be able to, you know, who else is going to fucking shit in a creek in the middle of a cemetery? Like, that's that's classic John Wayne right there. And, you know, yeah. I, I miss those adventures. And so I said, you know, Dad, that's cool. until we meet again on the other side, you know, don't let anybody tell you that you can't shit in an An- Angelic Creek. Like, you do you, buddy. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's what I titled this uh, document, Shitting in an Angelic Creek. So... Yeah, your your dad, um, God, he was really involved in some of the earliest stuff we did together too. Like, oh yeah, like you said, the the adventures you guys went on. Um, yeah, after he passed, I told a little story about how we went out um, to. Gosh, what what funeral? What uh, cemetery was that in El Dorado we went to? I don't remember what it's um, called, but yeah, I can't. Uh, Bella Vista. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, he went with us, and that was a lot of fun, man. He, I don't like I said, you know, he didn't really necessarily give a lick about ghosts, but he just wanted to be out there with the boys, man, and that was yeah. really awesome. Hell and yeah. I don't feel bad for telling the story about him shitting his pants because that motherfucker, my whole entire life, would rag on me for everything. And so that's kind of our relationship on ragging each other back and forth. So he's probably up there right now laughing his ass <laughs> off that I'm giving such a hard time about it. So. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds like him, man. That sounds like him. And I think, too, like I, secrets like that, like, yeah, I'll take it to your grave, Dad. But once you pass away, it's fair game, man. Yeah, it's fair game, you old fucker. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Hell yeah. Well, presto, it's a great way to kick off the next series of shows we're going to do. Um, I've got some reading to finish up as well because we've got a lot of great stuff lined up in the upcoming episodes. I've got a copy of Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers by Mary Roach. That book, of course, I got, hell, five years ago. Steve, when you and I were garage sailing and I got the cow skull, the cadaver yeah. book, and the fucking pickaxe, and I was praying we got pulled Maybe over. Maybe you guys can interview, interview me on some of the stuff that I've seen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's, I don't know, it's going to be an interesting setup because, again, we normally write the docs and you don't really write a whole lot in there. So yeah. um, beyond that, I think in these topics, you're going to bring a lot of interesting perspective, you know, from just your, your day-to-day work now over the last year or so. Yeah. Yep. I'm ex- for sure. I'm excited, man. Um, I've also got a copy of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory by Caitlin Doty. So I'm pretty stoked to get into that as well. So have you watched the newest season of Afterlife? Yeah, that show, man, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I almost forgot to mention it. If folks, if you haven't watched Afterlife on Netflix, it's a Ricky Gervais show and I mean, Ricky Gervais, I think the room is split. You either love him or hate him. I think he's great. Um, but I think there's a couple shows that he does that reaches a, reaches a lot of different people for different reasons. Yep. Afterlife is one of them as well as Derek. Yeah, yeah. And Afterlife is just – it's just really, really, really good, and there's something in it for everybody. Yep. Yes. Yeah, Presto, have you watched either of those shows, Derek or Afterlife? Afterlife, I've watched the first season, um, and it was pretty good. And then speaking of Afterlife, you should do yourself a favor if you've never watched it. It's called After Dot Life, and it's got Justin Long, Liam Nelson, and uh, Christina uh, Ricci. 
Ariki in it, and um, it's about uh, a guy that owns a morgue, and um, you just got to go watch it. It's hard. It's hard to explain, but it's a good movie. Okay. That sounds badass. Oh, yeah. Justin Long. I've never seen this movie. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, movie. and Christina Ricci. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Ricci. Well, who the fuck is Ricci? <laughs> What I say, Ricci, Ricci is that dollar is that dollar store Christi- Wednesday yeah. Adams? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Christina Ricci Master. Then, now and later, <laughs> basically. <laughs> now and later, that's better. <laughs> Fuck dollar store shit. It's officially the now and later. Ninety minutes in the movie, she's on the slab in the mortuary. So use your imagination. Oh. It's a pretty good movie. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, cool. We'll check it out, man. Hell yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, boys, it feels good to have all of us here again. I really, really relish these episodes. And, Steve, we've had a lot of people reach out and ask where you've been, and hopefully you're okay. So we're glad you're back, buddy. I'm alive. Boom. You want to hear something? You want to hear something, buddy? Indeed. We're at my my dad's house. (laughs) And uh, he goes, he says, oh, yeah, we can't, uh, I haven't heard from your uncle and his brother. I haven't heard from, from, from Bill in a while. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, how long? He's like, well, I don't know, like a week. I'm like, fuck, God, dad. damn it. You know what I do for my job? Like, do you, you know go how he's going to smell after a week, dad? Yeah, damn so, it. So he goes, so we get in my car and I go over there, we check on him, whatever, and he's fine, whatever. He's just there doing nothing. And uh, we go back to my dad's house and I open the door. Was he in his underwear? Was he uh, in a pair it? of shorts? He's most, most definitely in his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> sitting, on sitting, his, sitting on his front, on his front. Chair. He's like, what? What's up? Like, What's up? We were having a we were having a meal. We invited you over. Well, I know. I just had like you know just all this shit. He's like, hold on, I gotta put my dick Billy's, back in my pants, boys. Billy's <laughs> Billy's the type of person where he'll call my dad like three, four times a day. So it's really weird. You didn't talk to him for a week. But anyways, so the funny part is, is I go back to to their to my dad's house and Sarah's in there and um my nephew Eric. He's in like in the room playing playing and. It's Sarah in there, uh, my girlfriend Katie, and uh, my dad's wife, and they're all like sitting there. And I walk in, open the door, or first I I say to dad before I walk in, I was like, "Watch this." I open the door and I go, "He's dead." <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> Fucking Sarah, my sister goes ape shit. Fucking face turns white. And she's like, I can't believe. I was like, Sarah, do you really think that I would come into a room and be, if somebody had passed away and be like, he's dead? It's <laughs> so like the whole day. Heartless we're just laughing. We're, we're laughing so hard about how she was just so puzzled by it. <laughs> All right, guys, dude. we checked out Uncle Billy. Uh, I'm, I'm sad to say uh, rigor mortis had kicked in. In his dick. And uh, so you can't go over there. You guys can't go over there. We got to give it a couple more hours. (laughs) Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. Rigor mortis just set in his dick. It all focused (laughs) on his schlong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck, man. Well, on that note, folks, if you're on the social medias, please check us out on Instagram, PXLParanormal. I guess it'd be called at PXL Paranormal. We have officially successfully broke the 500 follower mark. Couldn't be more happy. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all the new listeners. And um, again, we're kind of in the 
process of switching everything over from Mark and Pixelated Sausage over to us. So we're just going to be in charge of posting and hosting everything. Um, we just kind of recently found out that the show has fallen off of a few podcasting sites like Stitcher and what else you say? Pandora? Yeah, Pandora, Podbean. Podbean has like episode zero and that's it. And I'm just like, what the that's fuck? so weird. Yeah. Well, we're going to work on getting all that stuff set back up in due time, guys. But for now, you know, the other major podcast networks, of course, you can find us. You can find us over on the old YouTube press and tell us a little bit about old YouTube. Yeah, we have 159 subscribers, 111 videos posted. One of them has over 2,000 views. So, you know, if you know anybody like Uncle Billy or maybe, you know, your dad, Steve, who are uh, YouTubers, Get them on there. Get them to like, subscribe, and share, and let's uh, let's grow the old YouTube channel a little bit. You know, for sure, man. You can also find us over on the old Facebook, the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. You can uh, check out on Instagram and Facebook. Both will post the episodes whenever those are first posted, along with any kind of episode companion guide. If there's any kind of cool pictures to go along with the podcast episodes, Steve, got anything, buddy? Shout out to Xbox for buying Activision. What up? Oh, I know. Wild. <laughs> it's so crazy. Other than that, <laughs> no, not really anything. Uh, I got a couple books recently in my hiatus from the show that are some first topics for shows, so I can contribute a little bit. Oh, yeah. Super stoked about that, man. You yeah. got some pretty good working ones. On my, working on my studio and stuff, so shout out to my studio. <laughs> I'm going to put a microphone in the closet. I'm going to be a new rapper. Oh, shout yeah, out. dude. Do it. Paranormal rapper. DWTC69. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to those three horror dolls that you found today in your fucking shed. Yeah, yeah weird. So, it was so random. so weird. Yeah. Like you Christmas all those, over like, again. Nego dolls? No, Kenner. Kenner, oh. Yeah, the fucking... Kenner, like, no. stamp... They're like the United States Post, post Office uh, stamp collection universal horror figurines. Yeah, weird. to bring up... And they were just, like, in a random box... And then I was like, what is this? I opened it up and I'm like, what the hell? It's weird. Yeah, it's a fun coincidence because um, presto, as you were cleaning out Big John Wiener's, you know, treasure troves, um, you gave me a set of the, um, gosh, what was that? Like the 30th anniversary of the post? I don't know. Some kind of anniversary collection of um, enamel pins that were postage stamps of like Frankenstein's monster, uh, Dracula, the mummy and stuff like that. And these figures that, Steve, you found are actually of the same collection. Universal Studios Monsters yep. collection. Um, they're the figures based off of the stamps that my pins are based off of. <gasps> it's the singularity. Yeah. yeah. The synchronicity <laughs> shit, yep. man. Singu yeah, that's what it is. Not singularity. Synchronicity. What a fucking idiot. Fucking amateur. Think about that dope-ass game. That's true. Singularity is a badass game. But, yeah, that's cool. Presto, what do you got, buddy? And as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that doesn't look like you're shitting in a creek in a cemetery, then you need to do yourself <laughs> a favor and go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and pick yourself up some scents like uh, Bay Rum, Dundee Cedar, Fresh, Citrus, Sweet Tobacco, and Classic. All right, and if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang up at CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca. And with that, I'd like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. 
The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.